Hello, you're listening to the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Doran, co-founder of 10 by 9 along with Padrigo Tuma, which we started in Belfast in 2011. 10 by 9 is a live event where nine people have up to 10 minutes to tell a true story from their own life. On this podcast, we're three stories for you, two from our April evening in Belfast and one from our friends at 10 by 9 Manchester. Let's start, though, with 10 by 9 regular Malachy O'Doherty. We have to travel back in time to the 1970s and to West Belfast for this tale of guilt. I feel guilty for getting myself beaten up by the Brits. I don't mean like an abuse victim who imagines he's to blame for the behavior of a grooming predator. I mean, I really did bring it on myself, which is not the same as saying I deserved it. Anyway, the story. This was 1971, a couple of months after the first internment raids. Army vehicles would enter the estate at night to make arrests or conduct house searches. And there was a standard response from local women and children. This was to bang bin lids or blow whistles. The noise alerted IRA members and others who were living with the prospect of being scooped. And I never joined this racket making. I didn't think it was my responsibility to alert the IRA. I had a clear sense that our community was dividing between those who supported the IRA and those of us who wondered how blowing up pubs or shooting policemen was going to advance the cause of Irish unity. I was in that camp, and yet I bought a whistle. I called into the athletic stores in Queen Street on my way to work one morning. It was a referee's whistle, <laughs> with a P in it. What was I thinking? I was 20 years old. I did have a mischievous streak. Maybe I thought I could chip in with the bin letters and the blowers and defer the day when an IRA man would take me aside and say, you know, some people around here aren't pulling their weights on. But that was going to happen anyway. There are a lot of things I did in my youth that I can't explain. Just keep your mind on that whistle. I was drunk one night. Not very drunk. I'd visited a neighbor, an old English woman. I call her old, but she's the same age as I am now. She was a retired teacher. I used to keep her company and marvel at her conversation. And she, on this night, fed me three pint bottles of a brown ale, which I had never savoured before. Mrs. McCusker was a marvel. And there weren't a lot of people you could talk to in a neighbourhood like mine. And leaving the estate imposed the dodgy requirement of getting back in later at night, usually a bit drunk, and there were risks attendant on that too. I lived with my father and mother and three brothers and two sisters in a two and a half bedroom semi in Riverdale. I shared the bedroom with three brothers, two sets of bunks. And as we were getting ready to go to bed, my father came into the bedroom and said, there are soldiers in the garden. These were nicknamed the duck squads. Soldiers with blackened faces would crawl through the gardens for some reason, perhaps planting listening devices, though I'm not sure the technology was up to that then, perhaps trying to locate arm stumps. What do I know what they were doing? They were doing it anyway. And on a crazed impulse beyond all reasoning that I can access, I went to a drawer, took out the whistle, opened the window, and blew it lustily into the chill night air. You think this is funny? 
perhaps this was just a young man's understandable protest against the constraints of living through a low-intensity conflict. If you can think of excuses for such daft action, I may be glad to hear them. And there was silence for a moment. Then an awful thudding sound. My mother came into the bedroom. They're at the back door. To be more precise, they were kicking in the back door. <laughs> and I was afraid of many things at once. Afraid of being interned, of having the shit kicked out of me, and worse, of one of my brothers being kicked in my place. That was the only thought that does me any credit, but it was immediate and not reasoned. If Roger or Brian or Niall were pulled out of the house and given the hammering I was about to get, then I would never have been able to live with myself again. So I went to the stairs and watched the door come through, flinging a little ornate table aside as it did so. And a very large soldier with a blackened face and a rifle stepped into the living room. He looked straight at me and signaled with a hooked finger that I was to approach him. He took the front of my shirt in one hand, twisted it and lifted me clean off the floor. What was I thinking or feeling? Not very much. I was embarrassed. My mother in her nightie was screaming at him to put me down. Put him down! Mommy, there's two meanings to that. <laughs> Others in the family held her back and the soldier took me outside. Several other soldiers now stood around with rifles. The big soldier ordered me to stand against the wall of the house and he pointed his rifle at my chest. I'm going to shoot you, Paddy. And I was thinking that if a bullet went through me and into the house, someone else would get hurt. Could we not do it over there? <laughs> Stupid bastard, he said. And he walloped me across the side of the head with his fist. He dragged me down through the garden by the hair, which was longer then. When I stumbled at a hedge, he kicked me in the forehead and dragged me through the hedge. Fortunately, all his blows were aimed at my head, which is hard. Otherwise, I might have ended up with broken ribs, a ruptured kidney, or a crushed testicle. He took me to a pig, an armored vehicle, and ordered me to stand with my legs apart and my fingertips on the side of the vehicle. Then he dropped a chain from the side of the vehicle onto the road to earth an electric current. There had been a recent news report that army vehicles would be equipped to electrocute rioters who climbed onto them. The chain flared pink and blue flame when it touched the ground. I suppose if he hadn't earthed the current, it would have melted my hands. Then he started barking questions at me. Stupid questions. Are you in the IRA? Who is in the IRA? A soldier inside the pig closed a shutter over the tip of my finger. Again, I was so numb that I felt nothing. And so he got little pleasure out of torturing me and stopped. Then I felt the first electric shock. Just a tingle, nothing really. Maybe about half a dozen of them. Nothing, no pain, no burning sensation in the gut. Years later, confident that I was electric shock proof, I, <laughs> I touched a wire around a field in Donegal. and instantly felt a kick in the small of my back. 
Here I only felt enough of a tingle in my hands, enough to be aware of what they were doing, but no pain. I was beginning to think these guys had a little better idea of what they were doing than I had. Obviously I should have been weeping by now, shitting myself. I've heard that victims of violence sometimes feel themselves to have floated out of their bodies above the action. I was certainly dissociated in some way. My friend Dennis, who was clubbed over the head by a dissident IRA man in a bar in Derry, tells me his emotions switched off through the whole incident. Presumably that's something nature does to protect you. I told the soldiers that I was a journalist and I named an army press officer I had dealings with. Then they let me go, though I don't know why they let me go. Maybe because I'd named a soldier who would vouch for me as a journalist, but hardly that. There wasn't much journalistic about blowing a whistle at them. But it has got to be this story. And I looked back across the garden, my shirt in shreds and blood running down my face. At the place where I'd been dragged through the hedge, I couldn't get through now. It was too thick and high, so I had to walk around. My mother and others were deeply relieved that I was back and didn't add to my woes by blaming me for the whole incident, though I was blaming myself. Two IRA men came to the back door to find out what had happened and perhaps to make a note of the fact that I had been released while so many others were being taken and tortured and interned. I got up and went to work in the morning as normal, bought dark glasses in a chemist shop to cover my black eye and told the reporters at the office what had happened. Serves you right, they said. Ah, <laughs> oh, we miss the Brits. <laughs> there are stories from Maliki peppering the podcast set in Belfast, Donegal, India and North Africa. So check them out. Let's go to 10 by 9 Manchester now, and I was there on Monday, April 29th, to say hello and to tell a story on the theme journey. 10 by 9 Manchester is run by Amy Marone and Judith Somerton in Chapter 1 Bookstore and Cafe, which explains some of the background noise you'll hear, but they had an impressive collection of stories. Here's one of them from Kelly Condren. My journey is the journey of motherhood. Uh, yeah, and um, just to kind of give you some context, when I was 13... The only thing I ever wanted to do was act, and nobody was going to stop me. No matter who tried to stop me, they were never going to stop me. And I was really lucky, with a tiny amount of talent, I managed to have a career as an actor, and spent um, six years in, in soap, and had an amazing time. I was being paid to do something that I adored to do, and by the age of 21, was able to buy my own house, and then I thought, well, what do I do now? Like, I've done what I wanted to do. What do I do now? And kids were never on the agenda, ever, ever, ever. And then I met this man that as soon as I saw him, I knew I was going to marry him, and that was it, and the kids came along. Um, and I've got two children. I've got George, who's eight, and Matilda, who's three. But she looks like she's seven. She's definitely going to play rugby for England. And her feet are actually a size 11, Whereas my eight-year-old's a size one, so that's like, we only got to 13, and then we got to one again. So she's, she's huge, and anywhere we go, anywhere where it's like under three and under, get in for free without paying, and we say that she's free, we get these looks like, no, she definitely isn't. This past year of motherhood has been tough, really, really tough for me. Um, we, a year ago today, um, we were having a lot of problems with my son, and he'd spent two years with this, this thing of when he'd eaten, he was sick. 
Um, and we went through everything. It was anxiety, it was a precursor for migraines, it was blah, 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 blah. Nobody could find out what it was until I started demanding. I'm very good at demanding. And I started demanding that he be looked at. And there was this wonderful woman at the children's hospital that after loads and loads of tests discovered that he, his esophagus was damaged and the bit that meets his stomach um, was letting acid back up. And so that he had to have this big operation and essentially they were going to put his tight stomach in a knot. And they could do that keyhole and it was amazing. And everything would be okay. And we did that and the keyhole surgery went wrong and they had to open him up and do the surgery. And those, it was supposed to be a three hour operation. And five hours in, we realized maybe something's not right. And in those five hours, I'd have given anything to be in this position. And actually, it made me realize, and still makes me realize every day, how lucky I am to be able to be a mother. And at 13, I thought, being on the telly or having lots of money or being popular would be the thing that completed me. And if someone had told me it had been children, I'd have told them to go away. <laughs> but my children absolutely do complete me. And we had our last operation. We had to have 11 operations to stretch the esophagus. So the big fund application worked and we had to have 11 operations to stretch the esophagus so that you could eat, basically. Um, and three weeks ago we had our last operation and we got told that that would be the last one that he has to have and then just luckily enough maybe the universe um, we had a holiday booked and we went to Orlando and we did Disney and we did Universal and it was the most amazing experience because it was the four of us in this wonderful little make-believe bubble when you think that um, Mickey Mouse waving at you is the most amazing thing in the world. Um, when Wendy told me about this, I thought, right, I'm going to jot some stuff down. And George came in, my son, and he said, what are you doing? So he said, I'm writing something, and I'm writing something about a journey, and my journey is motherhood. And he said, well, I've got a brilliant idea. When I did you a Mother's Day card, we wrote mother, and then we had to come up with a word for every, every one of the letters. Let's do that. So I was like, okay, so I've got that. So we started with meh, magical. Oh, awesome. <laughs> so I said, George, I said, awesome starts with an A. And George is going to be a politician. He can convince you anything. And he said, yeah, yeah, I know. But in America, they spell it O-R-S-U-M. Google it. So awesome. Tiring, happy, exciting, restful. And so then I said, well, how can it be restful and tiring at the same time? And he said, well, the restful bit is when you're in the jacuzzi drinking your Prosecco when we're in bed. Get it? Totally get it. Um, the next one was hard work and then out of this world. And then we were really struggling with our O's. We were really struggling. And he said, I know when I did your card, Mr. Moore, the head teacher, said, if you're struggling with O, just write opulent. Your mum will love it. So opulent and then the last one downright bloody brilliant thank you if you're wondering which soap kelly was in she played zara morgan in hollyoaks back to belfast now and he curtsied to the queen mum and got a photo with john major but listen as jim livingston reveals his unholy guilty secret i have a very bad cold so i can't hear anything so please applaud and laugh very loud uh, <laughs> 
I was born in Belfast and raised as a Roman Catholic. This meant that from an early age I was imbued with an irrepressible sense of guilt. It started at the age of six as my primary school class were prepared to A-level standard to make our first communion and first confession. We learnt above about those things we should never do, that is sins, both mortal and venial, and my favourite, occasions of sin, and the terrifying consequences if we ever did, purgatory and eternal damnation in hell. Later at confession with a priest, this guilt was reflected usually, and I checked this out with fellows, fellow students, basically three categories of reported sins. Telling lies, missing mass, and having impure thoughts. <laughs> yeah, sorry, it was the boys, not the girls. Sadly, in my case, the impurity never really got past the thought stage for quite a few years. But a sort of freedom from this repressive guilt regime came when I left school and started university at Queen's. At last, I felt I could breathe and live a little easier and chase women. And yet, truthfully, there was always, deep down, a lurking guilt in my psyche. In my third year at Queen's University, with exams nearly ended, I was wondering how to pass the summer. I needed work of some kind, but my top priority was to organise a holiday. My old school pal, Vince McCartan from Andersonstown, had written to me from Rome, where he was studying for the priesthood. He had invited me several times to come to Rome for a holiday and experience its delights. At first, I was reluctant. Spending weeks with trainee priests in Rome didn't really seem to offer the sort of holiday that would appeal to me. I was a student more interested in wine, women and song and more women. But Vince insisted I would enjoy Rome and its people. I was drawn to his enthusiasm and the prospect of an Italian adventure. So I said, yes. I almost said sea. I booked travel by boat and train across Europe and set off in early June, arriving two days later at Rome's Termini rail station. Vince was there to meet me, and after a welcome beer in the station bar... <laughs> that's the Strandmiller's sex bomb, by the way. <laughs> Note the flares. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> <coughs> Smithfield's best. Yeah. Uh, Vince was there to meet me, and after a welcome beer, he took me to the bed and breakfast house that he had booked for me on Piazza San Giovanni in Laterano, or as we knew it, St. John Lateran Square, just across from the Irish College where he lived. This was one of the main seminaries for training priests in the Irish Catholic Church since 1628. Over the next two weeks, Vince and his mates led me on a fantastic odyssey around the Eternal City. Visits to wonderful basilica, catacombs, museums, restaurants, bars, markets, filled every day. Uh, Vince even tried to teach me Italian so that I could chat to locals, especially of the female gender. And he knew all the best places for nightly entertainment. Every day was exhausting but exhilarating and I fell in love with the city. Despite being in the company of trainee priests, it was not a holiday filled with religious ceremony, which suited me down to the ground. I was much more interested in excitement and fun, of which there was plenty. A few days before I was due to return to Belfast, I celebrated by dining in yet another superb restaurant with Vince and my new friends. <laughs> I think the guy on the far side is now a bishop, but uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, actually I know a bishop who was in the college at the time, and I'm not going to mention his name. 
He lives in Derry. Uh, afterwards, uh, uh, afterwards, I visited a nightclub when, of course, the others went back to the college. I wouldn't want you to think they joined me in the nightclub. Um, they did. Afterwards, uh, and I got back to my digs very late and fell into bed, shattered, drunk, but very happy. I was woken from my alcoholic slumber early the next morning by the woman who ran the B&B, banging on my bedroom door. And in broken English, she said to me, there was an urgent telephone call downstairs. Dragged myself down, out of bed and stumbled to the phone. It was Vince. Jesus, Jim, get over quickly. Get up over to the college now. You're needed. Quick. And then hung up. Confused and hungover, I washed, dressed, and trotted across the piazza to the college where he was waiting for me at the front door. Jesus, Jim, the rector wants to see you immediately. He'll explain everything. The guilt demon suddenly rose in my heart. I thought I was in trouble for something I'd been doing the night before, or even the night before that, <laughs> and before that. I nervously entered Monsignor Silk's study. Hello, Jim. Thank you for coming over. We have our problem and you may be able to help us. Today is the Feast of Corpus Christi and after Mass, we always have a beautiful procession which is made up of the deacons from all the Roman seminaries, the English College, the American College and such like, and of course ourselves. This year the Irish College has been given the privilege of leading the procession. We only have six students, including Vince here now, for that purpose. This morning we discovered one of the six is ill and cannot take part in today's procession. I need a replacement. So I want to ask you to take his place. Would you agree to do this for the college, please, Jim? You'll be doing us a great favour. I was stunned. Uh, I wanted to laugh. Me, in a religious procession in Rome, this must be a joke. But he read my mind. No, Jim, I'm serious. I can see your shock, but we really need your help. You'll be a deacon of the church for the day. Imagine how proud your dear mother will be, he smiled as an old Donegal friend of mum. I thought for a minute and decided, well, that couldn't be that difficult. So I said, yeah, why not? So I smiled at myself at the thought, this would be a damn good story back in the Union Bar at Queen's. <laughs> Livingstone a deacon for the day. A frantic search began immediately to find black trousers and shoes for me to wear, as I only had jeans and trainers. Then finally fitted with a long black satan and clerical collar, I was directed to join the five Irish college deacons in a minibus. As I sat down beside Vince in the bus, I said, How far away is the procession? I thought we were going over to St. John Lateran's Basilica. He looked at me incredulously. Didn't Monsignor Silk tell you? It's the Vatican, Jim. We're going to the Vatican. <laughs> we're to be Pope Paul's acolytes. <laughs> oh, fuck! I <laughs> I suddenly felt faint. My head was spinning. Me in a papal procession? The grand was an orange one? <laughs> Suddenly I felt it was going to throw up. After some soothing words from Vince and a drink of water, I calmed down. While the Irish college deacons were thrilled at the thought of the day ahead, I was numb and shaking. When the minibus pulled into the Vatican courtyard, I now found myself led with others into the papal apartments where Pope Paul VI <laughs> was greeting guests. We were lined up in front of him, and he then greeted us and blessed us individually. 
we were introduced as his acolytes for the day's procession. I was a quaking, emotional wreck. <laughs> Being blessed personally by the Pope was a shock. And then the guilt welled up again. What the fuck happens if he finds out I'm an imposter? <laughs> Jesus, I'm definitely going to hell. Soon the procession began to proceed around the Vatican Square with the Pope, carried aloft in his chair by eight men, escorted by his six Irish college deacons holding large heavy candles. We were cheered on by an enormous crowd in St. Peter's Square. I have to confess, I was emotional, and a tear was actually in my eye. Along the entire route I could see women wearing headscarves and holding their rosary beads and waving at the Pope. In my mind I could hear them all cry, in an Irish accent. Oh, would you look at them beautiful holy boys <laughs> with the candles escorting the Holy Father. Aren't they gorgeous? Their mummies must be very proud. God bless them. My guilt register went off the scale. If those poor deluded pilgrims only knew what I had been up to the night before, boozing and carousing, they'd not be so sure of my holiness. Soon it was all over. Vince directed us all to a restaurant nearby where he had reserved a table. And still dressed in my black soutane and clerical collar, I celebrated again. The guilt of being a clerical imposter had given away to the joy of being a deacon for the day. What I got up to later that night remains my guilty secret. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. You will burn in hell. There's no question about that. That was Jim Livingstone and the Papal Conspiracy. Dan Brown couldn't have come up with that. You can hear Jim's story involving the Queen Mum and John Major on Podcast 89, by the way. And finally, Maliki's story reminded me of an incident from my teenage years in the bad old days. In Derry, and they, they once dragged me out of a car. I was about 18. Uh, because it was still school, and they dragged me out of a car thinking I was a petrol bomber for some reason, and there were five of them standing with their guns pointed at me in this semicircle, and I'm like, I'm not a petrol bomber. I go to the college. St. <laughs> <laughs> Collins, boy, we don't do petrol bombs. <laughs> Throws like a girl anyway. We have lots of events coming up in the next month, so check the website for details. You never know, there might be a theme that speaks to you. We love getting first-timers up to the microphone, and we are more than happy to help. And that's it from this podcast. A big 10 by 9 thank you to Maliki, Kelly and Jim. And of course, thanks to you for listening. 10 by 9 is always free, but if you want to help cover our costs, you can donate on our website, 10 by 9com and be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Our theme tune comes from the Free Music Archive and is by Fantastic Swimmers, while our incidental music is by Brent Bourgeois, sourced at Facebook Sounds. For now, bye-bye.